0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
2: This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio.
1: Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein, Executive Director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program, and I'm here on Zoom with my good buddy, Dr. Ann Greenhall. How are you, Anne?
0: I'm great, Jeff, and happy to be here today with you and very much looking forward to our interview.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we should note our third host, uh, the doctor, the good doctor. The Mikey. good doctor. <laughs> uh, I believe, uh, well, I know he's out this week. And do you know what? Do you know what he did this week, Mike? Or what did Mike do? Uh, Mike ran the CEO Academy oh. up in New York, and so he was with uh, a collection <laughs> of our faculty, including our wonderful Dean Erica James, and a whole host of uh, former and current teacher, uh, former and current CEOs who are the teachers teaching newly minted CEOs who are the students. So um, in a, uh, in that spirit of lifelong learning, yeah. uh, Mike continues to plow ahead.
0: Yeah, he's, uh, he's amazing. And a CEO whisperer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. We'll remind our listeners that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern, here on Business Radio, SiriusXM XM, Channel 132. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. Uh, and we have a really interesting show. And um, just as I am delighted to be here with you, I know that Margaret and Gina are delighted to be here with each other. So I am going to forego <laughs> what could be, you know, what... what What might be, uh, you know, some of our listeners' favorite part of the show, which is the off-kilter banter that we engage in Friday mornings. Right. uh, Because we have four voices that uh, I think are all going to come together for a really interesting conversation here. Uh, And so I want to jump right into it and welcome Margaret Greenberg and Gina Greenlee to Leadership in Action. Margaret, how are you today?
2: I'm feeling great, and it's so happy to almost be back on campus,
1: almost. Absolutely, absolutely. And Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really appreciate being here. All right. So let me say um, a little bit about both of you and then a little bit about um, your new book, because you are the authors of The Business of Race, How to Create and Sustain an Anti-Racist Workplace, and why it's actually good for business. Um, this is a book um, I will admit to um, having uh, a little bit of advance warning about this book. And so it's a book that uh, I was really looking forward to reading and diving into. And well, actually, so I, I got to say a couple of things about the authors and then I can talk about the book. Um, I'm very excited this morning. <laughs> Let's see. So let me start with Gina. Um, Gina, uh, an organizational development, project management, communications, training professional, um, with more than twenty-five years of experience in these roles across a variety of industries, including uh, in, and employers, including Johnson and Johnson and Aetna and the Hartford current. Um And Gina is also the author of. 19 books. So we have an experienced, uh, quite experienced author um, here with us on the show today. And then Margaret Greenberg, uh, prior to founding the Greenberg Group in 1997, uh, Margaret invested the first 15 years or so of her career in human resources. And today, some of her clients include CVS Health, Mass Mutual Financial Group, Prudential, um, she's also the author of the best-selling *Profit from the Positive: Proven Le- Leadership Strategies to Boost Productivity and Transform Your Business*, uh, and is an alum of the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program here at the university, um, founded by the wonderful Dr. Marty Seligman. So, Margaret, welcome. Yes, Back. thank you. Back to the show. So, okay, we have a lot to talk about. Um, And and one of the things that uh, one of the things I think I'd love to get started with here is, Gina, maybe to ask you, um, how does this collaboration uh, with Margaret come about and um, and and how do you engage in this kind of a writing process, um, you know, on a topic like race?
3: It came about, Jeff, when on May 26, 2020, my friend Margaret of more than two decades called me to ask me how I was doing. May 26, 2020 is the day after George Floyd's murder. She reached out to me and said, Gina, how are you? I've been thinking about you. What is going on in the world today? And Margaret left the space open for me to share a variety of feelings, and I also shared some stories about my experiences as a Black woman in the United States. Note that Margaret and I had known each other for for more than two decades at this point. In fact, I hired Margaret um, 20 years ago, uh, hired her consulting firm to do Mm -hmm. some work when I was the director of strategic planning at the Hartford Current. So, And yet uh, we had been so close. We had lived in the same state, Connecticut, and we had never spoken about our racial identities. Maybe, you know, I can count on one hand the number of times we've done that. Mm -hmm. So this was really uh, an opportunity for a a long-term friendship to to go to another level. So Margaret just held that space for me and I shared um, some stories with her. And then she said to me, Gina, you, you've written so many books and it's on so many different topics, why don't you tell these stories? And I said, uh, because if I do so, I will be summarily dismissed as the stereotypical angry Black woman. Mm-hmm. No one's going to listen. If, if it were enough for, for, for Black women and Black people to say, hey, this is what we're experiencing, you and I would not be having the conversation about George Floyd's murder. So, um, and I said, if you were to write about it, you would be summarily dismissed as the privileged white woman. No one's going to think that you have, you know, you are not going to be, it's not going to be felt that you can speak to this because you have, you do not have this lived experience. So I said, no, I'm not going to write about it. And Margaret, what did you
2: say? (laughs) He said, well, maybe we should write something together. And of course, not a book. I was not thinking a book. I was thinking, let's write an article together. And because we're both business professionals, um, the platform we chose was LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So we wrote one article called um, The Workplace is the Perfect Place to Discuss the Undiscussable, meaning race Mm -hmm. and racism. And there was such an outpouring of support and comments and dialogue that happened, you know, over this LinkedIn format um, that we decided to write another article and another and another. And it, it turned into, you know, six articles. Gina's in Florida, I'm up in Maine, so we're separated by thousands of miles, but of course we're doing all this virtually anyways, right, with COVID. And uh, COVID actually gave us the space, too, to write because, you know, we weren't socializing as much anymore. Right. We're kind of smuggled in. And um, so, yeah, we started with the just writing articles. And then, Gina, you (laughs) tell me,
3: I've been wanting, uh, as you mentioned, Margaret co-authored a wonderful book, Profit from the Positive, with her dear friend and co-author, Senya. Um, And. So I've, I've been wanting to um, reel Margaret in to co-author a book for years, and um, I thought this was the opportunity. I thought she would be, she was so busy with Profit from the Positive and all her other responsibilities as a consultant and a teacher and a lecturer that I thought, here's my moment. <laughs> I think she can hear it now. So I said, how about we, how about we just stop with the blogging and we actually write a book? And uh, she jumped all over that and To your question, Jeff, about how do we collaborate on a book like this, I'm going to have Margaret speak to the fact that Margaret had the the framework, if you will, because she had the literary agent that she and Senya uh, had. She had the pro forma for the proposal. So, Margaret, why don't you tell us what happened next?
2: Yeah. So we started, um, you know, with these weekly Zoom meetings where we, you know, scoped out, um, what would the proposal look like, right? And I did have the format already, so we were doing a lot of cut and pasting into the format. We reached out to um, the agent, uh, Jill Marshall, and um, she read the proposal, and um, she was just floored. She was like, oh, my God, nobody is taking a business lens to the work of racial equity. People are looking at it from a social justice lens but a business lens and an asset lens, which we can talk more about what we mean by that. Um, So she was really enthralled. We sent it out also to uh, other business leaders, CEOs, DEI people, people that, you know, we coach and and work with and got their input and kind of modified it a little bit. And then we submitted it. And Gina, I think it was like within a week or two, we heard back from McGraw-Hill. I mean, it was really
3: fast. It took them a week um to decide uh people as Margaret mentioned when we first started blogging on LinkedIn discussing the undiscussables people we learned that people wanted to discuss it we are overdue particularly in the United States for talking about this for so long we have um relied erroneously on the narrative of post-racial society and color blindness which relieves us of doing the heavy lifting of examining um our history as a nation, how we exist um, today um, based on that history and how we operate in um, the global world. So people are hungry for it, um, as we can see from what happened when the video of George Floyd's murder went around the world. So um, it took McGraw-Hill all of seven days to say, yes, this is a conversation we would like to support and be a part of.
1: I want to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and I'm here today with Ann Greenhall. And we are speaking with Margaret Greenberg and Gina Greenlee, who are the authors of The Business of Race, How to Create and Sustain an Anti-Racist Workplace and Why It's Actually Good for Business. Anne, let me bring your voice into our conversation.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. And uh, Margaret and Gina, I just you know, love hearing you talk because right now I can see your collaboration at work. Jeff and I hardly have to ask a question. And the two of you are bantering back and forth and bringing each other into the conversation. So you are actually demonstrating what you've done behind the scenes, which just you know warms, warms my heart. So let me ask you, you in your book, you talk about, you define some terms, and I, I found that very helpful. You talk about race work and race talk. Um, Gina, would you, you know, tell me what, what do
3: you mean by race work? Well, race talk actually comes before race work, and and race work is the work we do in the organiz- organizationally, in collaboration with our our peers and our colleagues, um, who come from multicultural backgrounds, and that is the work of reimagining our organizational spaces, um, embedding into how or uh, our organizations fundamentally function in a capitalist marketplace in a racially equitable way that's the race work so that's reimagining mm-hmm. our business policies practices operations it's uh, and how do we uh, this is not about Uh, working in a silo, right? You don't hire a DEI officer and then boom, we're racially equitable. Um, You you don't offer a training, boom, we're racially equitable. Um, It's it's really doing this work organizationally. Race work is creating a racially equitable uh, organization in the same way that you would address any other strategic business priority. That's where we think we add a different perspective on this. People get, uh, because this is such an emotionally laden topic, um, folks, and historically we've been told it's taboo to talk about it, period. And especially it's taboo to talk about it in the workplace. So everybody's all, everybody wants to talk about it, but they are so concerned about Making a mistake, putting their foot in their mouth. So, um, race, so that's what race work is. Race talk is what we're doing now. Race talk is what Margaret did, what Margaret and I did when she first picked up the phone and reached out to me the day after George Floyd's murder. Race talk is what Margaret and I did for eighteen months when we when McGraw-hill said yes, And we're like, okay, you know, so we have to do our own work. And where did we begin? We began by educating ourselves. We began by understanding, excuse me, there was so much that we didn't know. It wasn't enough that Margaret is white. It's, It's not enough that I am black. It's not enough that we have different lived experiences. I needed Margaret needed to understand my experience. I needed to understand her experience and her perspectives, her Grappling with what it, what white privilege means, and her saying, "What do you mean I'm privileged? I work like a dog my whole life. What are you talking about?" And her having to do that work, mm-hmm. and so we did that together. And we started by taking a course um, mm-hmm. uh, by Coursera, and what was it? The University of Champlain at, at, at Illinois, uh, Illinois, Illinois was, University, of Illinois yeah. at Champlain. And mm-hmm. it was it was amazing. And Marker can tell you more about that. But that, so race talk is. The, the beginning of race work, if you do not have shared lexicon, shared history, if you have not done your own inner work, if you've not uh, undertaken your own inner journey, then it will be very difficult for you to collaborate with others to advance a racially equitable organization.
0: Yeah, yeah Gina, I, I really appreciate your comment because what I'm hearing is that you're asking for an individual journey and reflection On each of our identities and our own racial history. And then also to share, so the interpersonal work of sharing those histories with each other before really being fully equipped to embark on that higher, you know, harder work. I don't know if it's higher level, but harder work of thinking about systemic organizational changes. Yes.
3: So one you, you said that so beautifully and so <laughs> succinctly. And we invite you now to be our publicist.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's so kind. And that's so, exactly it.
0: Yeah. I, and Jeff will smile when I say this, but uh, we have as an organization leadership program, you know, we strive, and this is so difficult, we try to practice what we preach, try to hold our values, try to be true to our values. So we as an organization have been uh, embarked this past year on a particularly deep dive on this topic. So we have been doing a good bit of race talk. And I have to say that one of the um, outcomes that that I knew intellectually, but really have felt more viscerally and I'm borrowing an expression that came out of our discussion, but how racialized gender is.
3: Yes, indeed.
0: And so, um, you know, we've been talking about equity and in particular gender equity, and we discovered that we couldn't talk about gender equity without also, and in fact, first (laughs) talking about race and how race informed our experience of gender so, I, I just want you to know that I appreciate your definitions uh, of race talk and and race work. And Margaret, I'm just might turn to you because, as someone who is presents as white and as female and therefore inherits a sort of tailwind of privilege that lifts you up, I'm just wondering, about that uh, experience of recognizing the privilege that you brought to the relationship and to your work experience. Could you you touch on that? Because I think that's a journey for a good number of women in our position.
2: Yeah, Um, I, I will say what Gina mentioned, the course that we took at the very beginning just to begin the education process in addition to reading umpteen books and research and whatnot. Uh, one of the in the course, one of the very first assignments we had to do was to um, identify how do you how do you identify yourself, right? And we have to write a paper on that. And I said I identify myself as a mother, um, a wife, um, a, a coach, a business professional, a, a lover of all things outdoors. You know, I started writing about all that. Um, And never did I write about um, feeling, um, you know, that I was disenfranchised in any way. And then there there was another question about, well, of all of these roles, be it uh, gender, um, hobbies, relationship, uh, which one might you have felt somewhat oppressed by? And I I really have to think for a minute. And I grew up in a very blue-collar Family. My father was a foreman in a factory. I was never expected to go to college. Like he didn't think girls like needed to go to college. Right? We were going to stay home and have babies. And I remember thinking, well, I guess the one role that um, I had experienced some oppression, not to the degree uh, of what Gina was talking about, uh, but was as a as a a woman in a corporate environment. Right? Right. So I did uh, experience that. And when Gina and I started doing our own race talk, right, and we, uh, she was going to write um, the part about white privilege, right, we were really trying to take on different roles, right? And uh, so, you know, we divide and conquered, right? You take this, I'll take that, and then we exchange and get edits and feedback and back and forth, back and forth, you know, hundreds of edits. Uh, and after struggling with white privilege, I don't know, Gina, how, how long did you really, like, work at that? I mean, it was it was weeks.
3: I think i <laughs> i think one of my my struggles um and i'm i'm laughing here because this journey is riddled with with struggles it's mm-hmm. riddled with mistakes it's riddled mm-hmm. with foot in mouth too vigorously mm-hmm. one of the themes in the business of race is that you will make mistakes people so mm-hmm. you know get your mind around <laughs> it <laughs> because that is inherent to growth mm-hmm. and One of the reasons that I think people want to talk about this and but are so afraid is because they are afraid of making mistakes. They are (laughs) afraid of saying something that will they feel depict them as something that they're not. They are. We are so afraid and. On the one hand, that's healthy, because that means we're stepping out of our comfort zones. Um, but we don't want to let fear, we want to move through it. We don't want to let mm-hmm. fear stop us from doing this. So I say that as a context, um, <laughs> really, for Margaret's comment and then your comment, and about um, the racialization of gender. Mm-hmm. Because, and you understand, I know from what you said, and I deeply mm-hmm. appreciate that comment, that the women's movement the course, woman's movement in the country is the white woman's movement. Exactly. That is why there is a black feminist movement, because mm-hmm. white women got mm-hmm. the vote, not black mm-hmm. women, okay, right. during the suffrage movement. So see, and and if that history, so the, I, I'm just stating a fact. Right, yeah, exactly. So so without that history, it's very difficult to have constructive, <laughs> productive race talk. If mm-hmm. you have women Let's say you know white women, women who do not identify as brown, black, or a person of color, whether they're Asian, Latino, Latina. Mm. um, Without that history, someone might suggest that someone who looks like me is playing the race card. Mm. When in fact, I'm I'm all I'm doing is recounting the actual history of the suffrage movement and legislation in this country. So, with that as context, one of a part of my journey and i'm 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 you know and i'm my heart's fluttering a little bit is yeah. i wanted to make my white friend understand this yeah <laughs> <laughs> that that while she and i are friends and she is so heartfelt and compassionate and 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 demonstrates so much empathy that historically she does have a tailwind behind her and I was going to make her understand. (laughs) So I was going to do that. So I was, I just struggled when that was why I was struggling because I was, I wound up stumping in the writing. And one day I just burst into tears and I was like, Margaret, you know, she wasn't understanding what I was trying to say. And I was like, well, why don't you write about it? You're white.
2: <laughs> so, so I did. I was, like, oh, I was like, "Give it to me, girlfriend. I'll, I'll, I'll write." You know? and, and I wrote it uh, not from an academic. Standpoint. I didn't draw upon any research for that piece. I wrote it from the heart uh, on how, when I first heard the term "white privilege." I was really kind of taken aback. I was like, "Wait a minute! I'm not privileged. I grew up in a blue collar family. I lost my mother to suicide when I was 12. I wasn't expected to go to college. I worked my butt off. I waitress. I, you know, babysat. I tent, I did all. You know, I, you know, I, I felt like I didn't have any privilege at all. And then what I realized was, okay, yeah, we all have struggles. We all do, right? But the one struggle I didn't have was the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. And that was like the light bulb went off for me. And, and so that's what I wrote about. I wrote about that kind of aha moment for me. And and so, but yeah, I was so grateful when Gina just said, well, hey, I, I've worked on this. And man, this is tough. <laughs> now there's other places in the book that you might think, oh, that must be Gina's voice, or oh, that must be Margaret's voice. And guess what? I guarantee 50% of the time, you'll be wrong. <laughs> it's our voice. It's our voice. I believe you.
1: <laughs> I I, I want to turn a little bit towards the setting for the book, and that is the workplace. And one of, one of the really unique aspects of this book, which I, I have to say is just so dense. Um, I believe there are you know, multiple college courses contained within this uh, within this text. Why the workplace as a setting to discuss the undiscussables about race? Uh, where does that where does that come from for you?
2: Well, first and foremost, it's what Gina and I know. We are business professionals that have worked inside organizations and outside of organizations. So, first of all, that's what we know. There's other. Societal institutions, you know, like like government and, and healthcare, right, um, education. Uh, but we chose the workplace because that truly is what we know, and we also believe it's a very influential uh, domain, right, in our society. So there's really six reasons, though, why we think the workplace is the perfect place to advance racial equity. And first and foremost, it's the place where oftentimes it's the first place where people interact with someone who is different from themselves, different in terms of their race, their ethnicity, their religion. In fact, it's where Gina and I met. Our paths probably would not have crossed had it not been for the workplace. So that's number one. Number two, every day people come together in any organization, regardless of what your product or service is, Um, they come together in what we call a ready-made coalition, right? Depending upon the size of your organization, you might have a few people, a dozen people, um, hundreds, if not thousands, uh, even tens of thousands uh, of people. And so you have this ready-made coalition that already has a shared purpose, right? They're working towards something. So why not leverage that already existing coalition to now influence Uh, society and influence the workplace. So that's number two. Uh, Three, why we believe it's the perfect place is because we have to routinely learn new skills, new competencies, right? To remain employable, to remain relevant. We all have to do that. And we believe that um, one of the 21st century competencies is the ability to work in a multicultural society. So that's the, the third reason. Um, fourth, it is the workplace is where there is still a modicum of civility. Okay, if you try to talk about race, it, it, you know, in line at the coffee shop or somewhere else, it, it might escalate or deteriorate. But in the business world, we have norms that guide people's behavior. So there's still this modicum of civility. So that makes it an, another reason why. Um, fifth. The workplace um, is a catalyst for transformational change. It has been since the industrial revolution through the digital revolution. It's where we see change happening in real time. In fact, uh, most recently with the pandemic, we've seen how businesses in many cases were ahead of government another institution, right? But the but business was ahead of government in, in many ways in terms of protecting their employees. So business is truly a catalyst for societal changes. And then lastly, um, businesses don't operate in a vacuum, mm-hmm. right? Businesses influence society, and society influences business. It's what we call in the OD, in the organizational development world, bi-directional. So one influences the other. So we just believe that business with innovative leaders and committed employees, that we really can advance racial equity in both the workplace that will then in turn influence society. We don't believe businesses can do it alone. Those other institutions need to be a part of it too. Uh, But we believe that business can really have a profound positive impact.
1: Ann, why don't we bring you into the conversation too? Oh thank you, Jeff. Margaret,
0: Gina, I'm I'm persuaded. You know, I I agree. I agree with you. And I just, you know, for sake of real full-bodied conversation, I'm wondering if you get any pushback or question about drawing the line from all that you've said to profit. <laughs> And I know, and I'm delighted, you know, we've had the business round table that's reminded us about shareholder value and stakeholder value and shifting from shareholder to stakeholders. But have you had pushback about how do I translate race talk and race work to profit?
3: Well, I will say not only have we not had pushback and, and Margaret, mm-hmm. I, I think you might agree on that. We actually make a very strong case for um, the favorable impact in terms of profitability, profitability, um, innovation, productivity, um, attracting and retaining talent. So that's another reason why we have placed this work within the institution of, of companies, um, because for companies to to exist i mean you look at a company like prudential or Aetna, you know they've been around for over 100 years these companies will exist long after everyone on this call is dead and the reason why that's going to happen <laughs> is because they're in business to make a profit so we made a very strong case for profitability. Do Margaret and I believe in the that it's the morally right it's the right thing to do. It's it's justice. Absolutely. But if if it, if that were enough. If the morality of it, if the justice of it were enough, then we wouldn't be having this conversation nearly six decades after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So we are speaking the language to business. And it's about profitability and sustainability beyond the lives of the individuals of this moment. And so Margaret, with that, I know, has some statistics she wants to share with you. Not the actual statistics, <laughs> but we have them in our book. So Margaret, take it away, girlfriend. <laughs>
2: Thanks, Gina. Uh, yeah, we do make the business case. We speak the language of business, right? And, and all of the, the profitability, uh, productivity, innovation, and, and talent, all of those are cited in the book. You can go in the reference section and see all the, you know, who we referenced the original studies, be it McKinsey or Deloitte or a university. So we, we have that. We make that business case because that's the audience for this book, business people. And not white people or black people or brown people, all business people regardless of the color of your skin. So uh, one of the pieces of research that um, we love that we actually got from one of your dear colleagues at Wharton, uh, Dr. Stephanie Cleary. Okay, uh, yes. Who who you probably know, right? Who self-identifies as Black. Um, She and her team of researchers at the Wharton People Analytics Lab, they found that employees who feel a greater sense of belonging to their organization, they take 75% fewer sick days than employees who feel excluded. Well, now we're talking about productivity and profitability, right? Uh they also studies, also found that employees demonstrate 56% increase in their job performance when they feel like they belong and have a 50% lower rate of turnover. Again, another productivity profitability measure turnover than employees who feel uh, excluded so we know from you know whether you're a, a frontline manager a middle manager a senior executive we know that when we provide our employees with tools and resources and processes to do their job well right we see an increase um, in productivity now managers have another lever they can pull to boost productivity and that is creating an environment where all people feel like they can belong and contribute. So we make a tough business case. Like to me, as a business owner of almost 25 years, this is a no brainer. And if we look at creating a racially equitable workplace from an asset lens, not a deficit lens, right? A deficit lens says, ooh, what are we losing if we start bringing in, you know, more diverse voices? Right. An asset lens asks, what are we gaining by bringing in those voices? What markets might it open up? What innovation will it spur? Right. So, what if we started doing things like calling people into conversations versus calling them out? That's a deficit view, right? What if we started? Focusing in on micro opportunities that we all have to make a difference every day, regardless of where we sit in the hierarchy. What if we did that versus focusing on microaggressions, or or what if we what if we started um, conducting stay interviews and finding out why people stay and what makes this such a special place, versus conducting exit interviews when by then it's way too late to do anything and so you're losing some really good talent. And who loses out on that? Not the employee who leaves. It's the company that yeah. loses out. Yeah. They're the big losers. So yeah. to me, it's a no brainer.
0: Yeah. Jeff, I know you're going to do a reset in a minute, but I just have to say, Margaret, what I uh, so appreciate in your responses, I can hear the language of positive psychology <laughs> in that we're not talking about a deficit model, we're talking about an opportunity to abundance, you know, to gain and to flourish if we do the difficult work of race talk and race work in organizations.
2: And Anne, I just have to say, if you would ask me, it's been 15 years now, I was in the first math, master's applied positive psychology class. If you would ask me 15 years ago that I would be applying positive psychology to race, I I think I would have looked at you like, say what? <laughs> I, I, it would have never have occurred to me. I was applying it to business process and my coaching of executives. And, and so it just shows that positive psychology can be applied in so many different ways that we haven't even unearthed yet. Yeah.
1: Oh, thank you, Jeff. Back to you. All right. Well, I will take this opportunity to remind us all that this is leadership in action. Uh, And that includes you. I'm reminding you that this is Leadership in Action. Um, We're on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. And Anne and I are talking with Gina Greenlee and Margaret Greenberg, who are the authors of The Business of Race, How to Create and Sustain an Anti-Racist Workplace and Why It's Actually Good for Business. So I'm going to select one of the many (laughs) questions that are bouncing around in my head. Um, And I'm going to take... uh, Take this opportunity um, just to say that I was really struck in the book by the the meta perspective that you take on, and and, and what I mean by that is the book discusses um, two things that that I spend way too much thinking about. Um, the first is how do we learn how to learn, and the second is how do we think about how we think, right? And so when I saw When when I saw this discussion in these chapter titles, um, you have to know, you went right to um, uh, just a a very sweet spot in my own heart. And and I wonder, Gina, if I could start with you here. um, You know, one of the one of the imperatives, one of the reasons for using the workplace as a setting um, that, that Margaret had Margaret had talked about was learning new skills and, and this 21st century skill of being engaged in a multicultural workplace. You know, you hear that, you say to yourself, yes, okay, that makes sense. I want to do that, I want to be engaged. What is the the pre-work that's necessary, similar to our race talk and race work discussion, so that we're ready to learn how to learn? to work in in this kind of aesthetic?
3: Thank you, Jeff. First of all, I love love the term meta. (laughs) And I love that you got, yes, our book is very meta. Um, It's not enough to be inside yourself as an individual. It's not enough to have multiple individuals doing that to work together. We must go further upstream and understand how as humans, yeah, mm-hmm. as a species, wh- what we share is how we learn and how we grow and how we evolve and how we think. So that's where that's literally where we began our writing. The after McGraw Hill said yes, we, we said okay. Well, the first thing is we have to help people understand. Before you can even tackle the content, in this case, it's race, and this is this is uh, what organizational development professionals do. Yeah, whether I'm talking about moving something, you know, technology to the cloud, whether I'm talking about uh, uh, getting um, an executive team to. Um, use a new performance management tool, or whether I'm talking about reimagining my business practices and policies so that uh, we have a more racially equitable workplace, doing it fundamentally, not having it siloed under HR or in the training. The first thing I'm going to do is before I even get to that content, I need to understand the context, the meta, what is going on, because how Let's say Prudential moves technology to the cloud is going to be very different than how the Hartford Current does it. And I did it, actually. <laughs> it's very different from how CBS Health does it, or how EverFi or CFR. So, so before we can get to the, the it, right? In this case, racial equity, we have to look at that context. And say, that's exactly what we did with the book. So before, <clears throat> before you just dive into race, which is so, and racism, which is so emotionally charged, what organiza- we step back and we do what organizational development people do. And we say, well, let's first, Jeff, help people understand how, as humans, we learn what are the stages of you know we use the conscious competence learning model we cite that model when we don't know what we don't know and then we do know what we don't know ooh that's really uncomfortable <laughs> and then how do we how do we take that undertake that journey the same thing with learning understanding how humans think and doing it with and understanding how humans change. One of the first things that I learned when I was hired by Johnson and Johnson, when I first came out of graduate school, 350 years ago, when I was 26, um, was I was introduced to James Prochaska's model, um, stages of readiness for change. So that discomfort that we talked about before the break, people are so terrified of making mistakes. If people understand that they are going to make mistakes, if people understand what how humans traverse the journey of knowing what they don't know, uh, making change, pre-contemplating, contemplating, taking action, maintenance, then they are better prepared to take on the content of whatever the strategic imperative is, in this case, a racial equality in in an organization. And they can say, oh, when they hit that, when they hit one of those milestones, they can then do the meta, they have the meta understanding of, oh, that's where I am. And it becomes less scary. That's a huge part of psychological safety, which is so important when you're dealing with content that is so emotionally charge so that met, that's literally where we started because we're OD people we start with the context and then we move to the content so thank you thank you Jeff for um bringing out the meta how to learn how to learn how we learn and how to learn how we think yeah yeah
1: think and, about and how we think Gina i i i just love um i love that reframing because what it gives all of us the opportunity to do is as we move from not knowing what we don't know to now knowing what we don't know, um, that's something to celebrate as opposed to something to experience, to, and to use Margaret's word before, to experience as a deficit, right? And and Margaret, can you um, connect into this before I, I hand it back to Anne again? Um, and, yeah. and I'd love I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, the comment that, that Anne made earlier. How does, positive psychology and this asset based mindset um, how does it really guide organizational leaders to um, engage with, sponsor, prioritize um, these kinds of discussions about race and racial justice in the workplace
2: Well really um, that asset lens is one of the themes that's woven throughout the business of race. And we actually offer some tools that are grounded in positive psychology, too. Uh, You might be familiar with um, the SOAR analysis. Uh, Instead of a spot analysis, which is kind of common in business schools, right, strengths, problems, opportunities, threats that's been around forever, Uh, we look at what are the strengths, um, what are the opportunities that we see, What are our aspirations, specific to you know? In this case, we're talking racial uh, equity, Um, and then results. The R are results, and again, we bring the business uh, lens as well, right? As the in addition to the asset or positive psychology lens, because in business, we we measure everything. Mm -hmm. We have to, right? We have to have metrics, and math doesn't lie. Um, So you might think you have a racially diverse workforce because your measures or your metrics might show that you have a 40 percent people of color. Uh, But then you start digging deeper. You start to unbundle that data and you, you find out that the people of color that you've hired are all at entry level or first-line supervisor level, and you might have maybe 1% at the top of the house. So unbundling data, um, again, I know that's not a positive psychology uh, tool necessarily, but I think it's that asset view combined with a business view Mm -hmm. is what's really uh, important. We also, another positive psychology um, uh, researcher that we draw upon is uh, Carol Dweck and her work around growth mindset. Uh, which we, we, we've done a, a lot around, um, and that instilling in people that to, in order to do this work, you have to take on a growth mindset. And to think you're going to have zero defects and not make a mistake, that is magical thinking. Uh, you will make mistakes. And we write about some of the mistakes we made um, mm-hmm. in, in the book along our own journey, which, by the way, we are still on our journey and always will be and out of the more than 2 dozen business leaders we interviewed for the business of Race, uh, do your own inner work and it's a journey came up again and again and again unprovoked you know not no leading questions on that it just came up in the interviews again and again and again
1: so and I'm um, I'm going to have to use my take back chip that's okay uh, because
0: Time we're, is we've had such a great time.
1: Yes, <laughs> time is tight. We're barreling, we're barreling towards yeah. a conclusion. Um, yeah. so rather than than have you ask a question, Anne, I will instead ask mm-hmm. you what is what what is one of the things that you're really taking with you from this conversation um, that you're gonna continue to, to work with.
0: Well, I think I'm I'm gonna go all the way back full circle to the very beginning. And Margaret's reaching out to Gina to ask Gina, Gina, how do you, how are you feeling? How are you doing after the death of George Floyd? Because I think that uh, the reaching out took empathy and courage and, and the willingness to say how I'm feeling also took empathy and courage. So I think having an openness, openness to learning, and to growth is fundamental to the conversation that we are talking about and being willing to sit in that ambiguity and not knowing, knowing, you know, knowing that there are things I don't know, and that I may discover those things that I don't know. And that could be destabilizing, (laughs) but being willing to uh, embark on those conversations with others, I think is really fundamental to making the kinds of change that we're all, that we all here are hoping for.
1: Well, thank you, Anne. And, and we wanna say, uh, Gina Greenlee, Margaret Greenberg, thank you so much for, for joining us today to talk about your new book, The Business of Race, how to create and sustain an anti-racist workplace and why it's actually good for business. For our listeners, thank you all so much for joining us today. And if you have a question about something you heard on today's show, please email us at businessradio at seriousxm.com. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. And once again, special thank you to our guests, Margaret Greenberg and Gina Greenlee. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Sirius XM 132.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.